This podcast is brought to you in part by Hallow, the number one Catholic prayer and meditation app. Build a habit of prayerful discernment both in this election season and in everyday life. For a 30-day free trial, head to hallow.com slash votingcatholic. New Orleans is a tourist city, and we're based on a service economy, if not an oil and gas economy, when those times are booming. Uh, throughout my uh, upbringing, gas and oil came in and out, but I was mostly framed by a service economy, which means there was a lot of, of, of poverty in my city. Uh, and particularly as a Black child growing up in a single-parent home, we experienced a, a lot of issues regarding poverty. I mean, there were uh, difficulties sometimes in paying uh, my tuition for school. Uh, my mother struggled, I know, uh, working multiple jobs because they were low-wage jobs. Our life was framed around the fact that if you are Black in America, you're probably already making poverty wages and it's very hard to have upward mobility. I'm not sure how much folks know about New Orleans. I know they know about Mardi Gras. I know they typically know us as the party city and they know us as the port city. They know us as the city that uh, was devastated by Katrina. I believe we have, we're known as the, uh, the city or the community that has the largest population of Black Catholics. And at least that was the, the, the way it was prior to Katrina. Hurricane Katrina has made landfall now on the southern Louisiana coast. We all have transportation. I mean, we live in paycheck to paycheck. I mean, it ain't like we're just able to get up and just leave. But believe me, folks, we are just touching a very mere fraction of what we are going to deal with this, this hurricane. I mean, 150 miles an hour, all right? We're not even near that core yet. And as that comes rolling up past the mouth of the Mississippi River... What the natural disaster brought to my forefront and, and, and to the nation's forefront was, again, how precarious our economic situations are. Because where I was able to meet my basic needs in preparation for a storm, even to evacuate a, a natural disaster, I, I want folks to understand, to in order to, to, to flee to safety, cost money. So when the hurricane hit for me, because I was so used to not having a choice, I did not actually have a plan of getting myself or my immediate family out. And so that's when the panic hit, like, oh, well, we really are in harm's way. And so made the decision with my mother and my brother to simply seek refuge in the Superdome. As I looked around the Superdome, the majority of the people there were like me. They were Black uh, citizens of New Orleans. Um, we were low income, we were poor. And then at the, the evening of that Monday, the 29th, is when we were struck with the news that the, the levees had breached. The scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. That the city was flooded. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. And that um, that we were, in, we were not in a good space. We were not in a good place. And rising waters will now force officials to evacuate the shelter at the Superdome. Katrina's departure was just the beginning of the misery. My mother and I did not get out until the following Saturday. We were evacuated out of the building and then to the airport and then onto planes, which uh, we had no choice as to where the planes were going to go or where the planes were going to take us. Um, but over the course of those eight days, I watched what amounted to my government, both local and federal, 
not appear to have a plan to save us, and that there was really no plan on what to do with a city that you well understood the majority of its citizens, and particularly the majority of its Black citizens, lived in poverty. In a recent Pew Research survey, the economy topped the list of most important issues to registered voters ahead of the 2020 election. That's not unexpected. Americans care a lot about how the economy is doing, particularly the rate of growth, because it serves as a benchmark for the overall state of the country. But from a Catholic perspective, the well-being of any nation is measured by how its poorest citizens are doing. So much so, write the U.S. bishops, that those who are oppressed by poverty, about 40 million Americans, deserve preferential concern. From America Media, I'm Sebastian Gomes, and this is Voting Catholic, a podcast about what's at stake in the 2020 election from the people who know the issues best and bring their faith to the voting booth. In this episode, we're looking at poverty in the United States today. I'm speaking with Jennifer Wells, an anti-poverty activist, about what poverty is, how it's misunderstood, and why, if it's not one of your top voting issues, it should be. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and I'm the producer of a new podcast series from America Media called Church Meets World. It's about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. We developed Church Meets World because there are so many powerful stories we come across in America that could not only be translated to audio, but completely reimagined in the process. So check out Church Meets World at americamag.org slash churchmeetsworld, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Jennifer Wells is the Senior Regional Organizer with Community Change and Community Change Action. She knows poverty, she's lived in poverty, and she's dedicated to eradicating poverty. I began my conversation with her by asking what poverty really is. Poverty is the lack of the ability to meet your basic needs on a consistent basis. And um, what we know is, according to the 2018 census, 38.1 million people in America live in poverty. But that's based on a federal poverty guideline that was set in 1960. What we know then is that while that standard is set, there are far more people that are actually existing and living in poverty than we are counting. And so estimates are that there are more than 51 million Americans, uh, and this is pre-COVID numbers, uh, 51 million Americans that are living and subsisting in poverty that are not uh, able to, to, to meet their basic needs regularly. The people who grow up in poverty know the daily stress um, of the unknown, of the not knowing, of the not, of understanding you're not prepared um, for a big turn of events. You're not prepared for a natural disaster. You're not prepared for a medical emergency. And often what I feel the the rest of, of the folks who, are, who necessarily don't grow up in poverty or who may be talking about it or trying to make decisions and, and build solutions around it, often have this frame of mind that it is easy to get out of it. And that's just not the case. For folks who live in poverty, and particularly when you're talking about generational poverty, which most folks think is a choice without understanding the depths at which you are, you are and how hard it is to climb out and be secure. 
I'll jump a, a little bit further to my my adult life, the the life where I finally got a degree and I was working in what is considered a profession, and I had to pawn a ring um, for Thanksgiving dinner because I had no money in my account at the end of the month to buy the turkey for Thanksgiving and. And this is something I want to talk about because I I feel it's necessary that folks don't feel ashamed of these moments, uh, even as I at that time probably felt ashamed to say it at that moment because I felt it was a failure on my part. But the fact that I had a degree, um, that I was working a, a full-time job, and yet my full-time wages didn't allow me to pay my rent, pay my electricity, keep my cell phone, gas my car up, and then at the end of the month, be able to buy what amounted to a $10 turkey. Uh, that was five years ago for me. Now, everyone can agree that that poverty is a bad thing in the United States, that the numbers of, of people who live in poverty in the United States is unacceptable. And from a policy perspective um, and a political perspective, uh, there's a lot of debate about what the best way to tackle that issue of poverty is. And so I'm wondering, you know, What's your take on on where this country is at in terms of policy and how the people who govern, the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress, um, the current administration, are actually doing? This is um, deeply personal to me. And, and personally, I believe they're not doing a good job at all. The folks that are in the decision-making arena, the policy arena, I think it, it's born out of, of classism. As much as I can speak to America's race struggles, we have immense class struggles that intersect uh, along with sexism and gender inequity. And all of that combines to make it very difficult for certain tar- parts of our population to exist. And the way that this country's values are centered around work ethic, we still hold people responsible for why they're in poverty. And we, our government and our policymakers, and even the population as a whole, sometimes cannot see how laws and policies of, from generations back influence how folks are able to meet their basic needs economically. Um, there's just this big belief in America that if you just work hard enough, if you just try hard enough, you won't be living like that. And if you are living like that, somehow you've made that choice. We have laws on the books um, as we are as as we're uncovering now in, in the political realm and in the scholarly realm around how laws, racial laws were built around housing that kept black Americans in substandard, subpar, unaffordable housing. And as folks are fighting to get back to the just a level playing field, how many political legislative municipal obstacles were put in their way on purpose. And for a lot of folks that don't delve into that kind of information, they may only see the surface. Oh, well, you just didn't want to work hard enough to get into better housing and not understand the system was built for some folks not to be able to get into affordable, decent housing. It also creates this, this, this lack of inclusion in conversations. And when you are not, um, including folks that are living, have the lived experience of poverty, can speak to how deep it runs, how hard it is to get out of that situation, how hard it is to see yourself as upwardly mobile or actually experience upward mobility in this country. Jennifer, so it sounds like you're saying that, you know, in order for this country to actually solve the problem 
of poverty. It's not just about the politicians who are elected passing legislation from Washington, D.C., or even from you know the, a state legislature uh, in a particular part of the country. It has to be an actual conscious, proactive decision to bring people who live in poverty to the table to participate in the conversations about how those policies and what those policies should be. Absolutely. I am a, an extreme firm believer um, in, in those that are experiencing the issue should be at the lead, in the lead, actually, of finding the solutions. It's not impossible for our country to get there, but we have to get past the noise uh, and to become inclusive for us to get there together. So that idea of, of bringing people who live in poverty to the table, to decision-making positions, positions that have real power and real influence, that doesn't strike me as um, as a crazy idea. That that seems to be pretty straightforward and make a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm wondering why you think in a country like the United States of America that is tremendously wealthy, uh, that has not been done. At the heart of it, I believe that Americans see this world and our economic picture in a through scarcity as opposed through abundance. And when they view the world through scarcity, there's only a finite amount of resources uh, that are available. And therefore, if anything is taken from that finite amount of resources, that leaves less for the rest. And so I think um, there's a there's a big cultural shift that's going to have to take place where we actually understand we're not fighting for scraps that there is enough for all of us to have and to live well and to be okay. And because of that perspective, that scarcity perspective, um, folks don't want to invite everyone into the room. There are only a certain amount of people that are allowed into small meeting rooms that finally come up with decisions. And when they're in that room, thinking through scarcity, they take care of themselves first. And when you think of poverty, there's usually this underlying assumption that they are not educated enough or they're not knowledgeable enough or they're not dignified enough um, to speak truth and to speak to true solutions. And so the idea of othering poor people and and in my case, othering women and othering black people uh, pushes us farther and farther out of the room. And what they don't understand is, is that's so not the case. Educated people, people with PhDs can't make their rent here in America. We're human beings. We deserve to live in dignity. And it's a fight to break down that door to get into that room. And it's taking a lot of time and it will take more time. Jennifer, let's move to the Catholic perspective on poverty. I don't think it's a secret for any of our listeners that at the heart of the Catholic faith is a a very strong concern for the poor and the marginalized. Um, It's a biblical imperative. Jesus did not hide the fact that he was closest to the poor and to the marginalized. Um, So this teaching has very deep roots, not only in the Bible, but also in the tradition. Um, But I'm wondering if you could tell me how the Catholic Church's reflection on poverty could be applied to the situation in the United States today. I have always been around Catholic folks that have believed deeply in charity, and it stopped there. They gave 
they gave money or they packed up great food baskets or they distributed toys. Um, and there was still this disconnect in that act that we were not the same, that we were not in the same community, that almost we weren't in the same world. Jesus ate with poor, he ate with the tax collector, he ate with the marginalized community. He did that in my estimation because he saw, he saw himself as no different. And why should we? And I think the first step that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to break out of our physical churches and we're actually going to have to be a part of our community. And a part of our community are the folks in our community that can't eat and that just needs to stop. And we have the power to do it. We have the resources to do it. We have the voices to do it. And uh, we should put those to good use. Jennifer, as you're speaking, I hear a lot of these uh, principles of Catholic social teaching, uh, things like the preferential option for the poor, um, which is basically, you know, what you articulated, that the poor have to be at the center of the decision making of the community and and be given that power to participate. Um, also, you know, human dignity, um, solidarity, being in solidarity with with one another. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, there are 50 million Catholics who are eligible to vote in the United States. From a policy perspective, what would it look like if the Catholic Church really tuned into its own teachings on poverty and tried to influence policy in the country? Here's what I know as a Catholic. Uh, we're not just Catholic faithful. We are, are, are leaders in communities. We are at the heads of, of corporations. We are at the heads of government even. And to actually speak to the value of, of abundance and resources and, and, and the idea that we are all one in solidarity could change. It could change this country. It could shift this culture. I'm lucky the light bulb went off when I experienced and lived through Katrina that I no longer wanted to live a strictly capitalist life because I had that about me, right? I could, I went to church. I did everything that I thought I should as a good Catholic, and yet I still lived in a very selfish mindset to some degree. As I came out of that experience and realized as I was in that the Superdome with thousands of other people experiencing the same thing I was, that was my community. And there was nothing that I should do for the rest of my life that would not seek to end a Katrina. Jennifer, considering all of this complexity, the reality of systemic poverty, um, you know, you call it a class system, um, and then your own faith reflection on all of this, how do you approach the voting booth in November? In all my identities, as a Black woman, a Catholic, a Southerner, someone that grew up in poverty, I, I walk with all that lived in experience into the voting booth because my whole life intersects there. Uh, everything that allows me to function in this country, to be in this country, is in some way, shape, or form going to be decided in that moment, on that ballot. And understanding... Um, how important the federal election is, but also knowing that my local school board election is even as important, if not more so important, because that impacts my daily life, my community's daily life, the children that are going to grow up in the next 10 years, their lives and how their futures will be constructed. 
I walk into November 3rd knowing that it is one tool, um, that it is one way that I can have an impact, that I can state my beliefs and, 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 and live my value, but that is not going to solve all of my problems. Next time on Voting Catholic, we're looking at how Catholics wrestle with the contentious issue of abortion. The first question that we ask people is, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word abortion? And, you know, for some of the women in our study, they would say, well, it's me. It's my experience. And how the experience of one activist forever changed her understanding of what it means to be pro-life. Like, I just understood that what violence is, is really a trauma and that passing on more trauma wouldn't serve to heal anyone. For complete coverage of the 2020 election from America Media, visit americamagazine.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting us. Visit americamagazine.org donate or subscribe to our award-winning print magazine. Thanks for your support. And if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know about it. That's the simplest way to spread the word about the series. And leave us a review. Voting Catholic is a production of America Media, a Jesuit ministry. This episode was written and produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Sound design and mixing by Ashley Spillane. With production assistance from Kevin Robles and Erica Rasmussen. Art by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton. It was recorded at a safe distance in the William J. Loeschert studio at America Media in New York City. Voting Catholic was made possible by the generous support of Beth and Tom Rainey. I'm your host and executive producer, Sebastian Gomes. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you in part by Hallow, the number one Catholic prayer and meditation app. Build a habit of prayerful discernment both in this election season and in everyday life. For a 30-day free trial, head to hallow.com slash voting catholic.